I'd like you to turn with me to Romans chapter 15 and ask you to stand for the reading of the word. A good stretch is oftentimes a good idea, especially when I'm preaching. <laughs> Hopefully it won't be too long. As we turn to Romans chapter 15, we're picking up actually at the personal remarks that come at the end of this epistle. And we'll talk a little bit about the epistle as we go, but we're beginning in verse 14 and reading through verse 22. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, speaking to the Romans in his letter, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. The power of signs and wonders and the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I know the church secretary was a little bit nervous when she saw the title of the sermon. Um, I put some note sheets in your bulletin and you might notice that it's kind of scary there. I can imagine that the elders of this church for the last year and a half or longer than that have been a little bit nervous every Sunday morning, watching the door for that preacher to show up. You've had a lot of them, different ones. Some of them have come quite a distance. Um, most of the time they have been there. But a couple of weeks ago, Tommy Hanna had a family emergency and um, somewhere he's here hiding over there. Uh, Phil Long stepped in in the last minute. I don't know how much notice he had, but I'm sure he's got a couple of sermons stashed away. And he opened up the, the 23rd Psalm to you, and um, it was a blessing. Um, I served as, as part of Lake Stevens Presbyterian Church, also known as Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, while I was there for quite a few years. And when our pastor left, I think it was about 1992, we were three and a half years before we had another full-time pastor. So I know what it's like <laughs> to um, look at the door on Sunday mornings and hope that that associate pastor, that um, preacher will show up. And um, what we did was, and I'm, you're probably glad that we didn't do that, you didn't do that, but we tried to do half the preaching from within our body so I would preach fairly often, and then each of the elders got two times a year to have the opportunity to preach the word. Probably the funniest one was when one of the elders 
who was absolutely convinced that any sermon worth its worth would only be 20 minutes, made a wager with his son before the service that he would not go over 20 minutes to a tune of a dollar a minute. 42 minutes. His son was smiling back there, preach it, Dad, preach it. <laughs> in 2007, in November, I was part of a mission trip to Uganda with the African Christian training. And there were a number of us going. Uh, it was organized by John Pickett, um, who was um, very active in, in ministry in Uganda, pastor of a church in Las Cruces, but was my pastor here in Lake Stevens for a time. And so, so a group of us were coming from different corners, from New Mexico and um, oh, all over this country. And we were rendezvousing at Heathrow Airport to catch our flight to Uganda. Well, we were there. John Pickett wasn't. What had happened was he was flying, I don't know how he was flying through Italy, but anyway, his flight was delayed by three hours. He had to reroute his trip to go through Brussels and Nairobi to get to Entebbe in Uganda. As a result, he was two days late in arriving and he had to catch up with us. We were all kind of just wondering, our leader, this is the guy that's responsible for leading us on this mission, where is he? But we went on, we pressed on, we got in our vans and we headed off to our venues. The Africans had kind of organized these things for us and we, we played it by ear, which is always the way you do it, especially in Uganda. John finally caught up with us. His luggage didn't. He had packed all his notes in his carry-on and not a stitch of clothing. For a week, he was like those missionaries that Jesus sent out, telling him not to take an extra cloak. He was borrowing clothing from us. He even had to get a toothbrush off of somebody. Um, Paul here has been wanting to come to Rome for quite a time. And I'm sure he has communicated that fact to them. It's obvious that he knew a lot of people in Rome, and in particular Aquila and Priscilla, um, which, who he worked with in Corinth. And he was in business with them. They were tanners and um, tent makers, and he did business with them. They also worked with him in Ephesus, and, and they had come from Rome originally. They had gone back to Rome and started, helped starting churches there. And so they knew that Paul intended to come. But his intentions were kind of offset by preventions. Um, he was busy. He was involved in a lot of ministry, and so his intentions oftentimes were overcome by circumstances beyond his control. In this particular case, he's got to go to Jerusalem first, accompanying an offering from the churches of Macedonia and Greece to the poor and those suffering from a famine in Jerusalem. And so he writes this letter to let them know that he is intended to come, but he won't be there for a while, but he will show up once he's got this little trip out of his way. And so the letter begins, the first 15 verses or so, as Paul gracefully says to them, you know, I really respect you as a church and I really want to be there, but I've been hindered. 
And then he launches into a rather lengthy digression. Uh, some of those of you that were at Covenant College and possibly at Covenant Seminary might remember Ian Tate. He was a guy from England that would come over and lecture. In fact, he had quite a collection of Puritan volumes. I think he had something like 8,000 in his collection, a thousand of which are now in Covenant Seminary's library. But I remember hearing him speak when I was in college, and he was always wandering off down some rabbit trail. And all of a sudden he'd say, but that's a digression, and then he would go back to where he was. Well, Paul, in a sense, has launched into a rather lengthy digression here, but he's wanting to focus on the essence the central features of what the gospel is all about, because he's never been to Rome. He wants people to know what he's teaching and believing. He wants them to be on the same uh, mission that he is on, and just to reassure them that this is the gospel as we understand it, that he's preaching. He deals with other matters. You've heard a couple of sermons on some of those, one not too long ago about, um, you know, what about people that don't see things quite the same way we do, and how to live together as brothers and that. But as we look at the book of Romans, we find that Paul is saying to them, I intended to come, but I've been prevented. You know, that happened more than once in his ministry. In the past 15 years, Paul has made three missionary journeys. I don't know how many thousands of miles he's traveled. He's been in shipwrecks. He's been um, run out of town. He's been uh, uh, gone through all kinds. He's been in jail a few times. Um, he's been preaching the gospel and planting churches all over Asia Minor and, and in Greece and up into Macedonia. And, and um, he's been working at planting the church. And he wants to come to Rome and encourage them. And then he wants to go on to Spain. Well, as we look at the passage this morning, the sermon this morning, we want to notice the, some of the things he brings out in this text that we have here. I think there's a lot that could be drawn from this, and I, if I started to unpack the whole passage in detail, it would be a rather lengthy sermon. But there are three areas in which Paul emphasizes what his ministry is all about, and what gives his ministry its power and strength. And he focuses it entirely in Christ Jesus, verse 17. In Christ Jesus, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So I want to look at three areas of his ministry, and I want you to notice as he presents these things that he puts the emphasis not on what he's doing, but on what Christ and his spirit is doing through him. And I think this should be an encouragement to us. You're currently anticipating a, a change in your ministry, and I want to encourage you to, to pay attention to the ministry that he's talking about here. The first thing he talks about is in Christ Jesus I have a gospel and I have grace. He says, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. 
He's got a gospel, a message. What is the gospel? Well, there's different ways you can define it. Uh, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Um, there's different passages of scripture that talk about Jesus coming and preaching the kingdom of God is at hand in Mark. That's kind of how the gospel is expressed. But Paul has taken the opportunity here to present to these saints the gospel in a rather detailed form in the book of Romans. Now, uh, the book of Romans is one of those books that I'm sure someday your pastor will preach through. But I can suggest probably it won't be the first book he's going to start on. Because you tend to spend a long time on the book of Romans. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 365 sermons on the book of Romans. Every Friday night, a new sermon. Sometimes a whole month on one verse. And he didn't finish the book. He stopped it in the, in the middle of 14. Um, there is a lot of truth in these passages and if you go to seminary, if you're studying systematic theology, um, you've got to work with the book of Romans. But do you realize that if Paul had not been hindered, he might never have written that book. He might have just showed up at Romans and preached it. It wouldn't have been written down. In fact, at this point in time, Paul has written letters to the Thessalonians. He's written a rather harsh letter to the Galatians. He's written a couple of letters to the Corinthian church that um, are both good and bad. And that's it. The book of Romans, Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, the epistles to Timothy and Titus have not yet been written. And yet those passages, those scriptures are so important to us. God knew that Paul was a man who wouldn't sit down for very long. He wouldn't sit still at all, hardly. He was constantly on the move. And so I think God prevented him in order that he might lay out for us the gospel. Now, being a man on the road all the time, he presents to us what some people refer to as the Romans road. Are you familiar with the Romans road? It's a convenient way of presenting evangelism. Uh, it starts out with um, the fact that there is none righteous, no, not one. We are all sinners. Um, Romans 3.23 teaches us that the wages, of, uh, yeah, that we're all sinners. And then the 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is righteousness in Jesus Christ. Um, he goes on to talk about in... Um, Actually, defining the gospel in chapter, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, it says it's the power of God for salvation. In uh, 5.8, God shows his love for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. In 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation, therefore, to anyone who is in Christ. In chapter 10, he emphasizes the fact that it's through faith and believing. I mean, the book of Romans is packed with the gospel truth. And this is what Paul preached. This was what Paul's activity was concerned about, and he refers to it here with some rather odd language. 
He says, this is, I'm a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Well, the first word we have to notice here is the word minister. Because the word minister there is a word that we get the word liturgy from. You know what liturgy is? Liturgy is the worship service, right? It's the order of the service. And the word actually comes from a, Latin, a Greek word meaning a person who takes on a public office at his own expense. And I suggest that Paul is emphasizing here the fact that the ministry he has been called to to the Gentiles is a task, a, a, a ministry. And it's one that, well, it involves certainly a devotion to the, the sacred service of the gospel. Uh, NIV I like here because it talks about the service, priestly service of proclaiming the gospel. Nowhere hardly in scriptures does it talk about the proclamation of the gospel as being a priestly service. But Paul is emphasizing the fact that we have a ministry that's comparable to the priests in the Old Testament. It's a way of serving people and bringing people and God together. That's what a priest does, connects between God and people. And so Paul is proclaiming the gospel. And as Paul says right here, on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God. The other aspect here, I, we talked about the gospel. Paul has the gospel message down. But along with it is the grace. Paul has experienced the grace of God, the love of God. In Timothy, and this is not the only passage where Paul speaks this way. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I reserved mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example for those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul knew the love of God because he knew what a sinner he was. He held the robes of the people as Stephen was stoned. He went to Damascus with, with letters enabling him to seize and even kill Christians until he was stopped on the road by the Lord. Paul knew what mercy and grace was all about. And so as he's bringing the gospel to people, he's doing it out of a sense of the love of God that's been shown to him, the love of God that's being offered to others. And he knows how powerful this gospel message is because he's experienced it personally in his own life. You know, 
when I was in seminary, they talked about the life of Paul as perhaps one of the arguments for the truth of Christianity. Because nobody can explain how a man who was so bent on destroying the church would turn around and become the man that really established the church in Western Christianity. Only if you realize it's true that he met the Lord on that road and his life was transformed, can you understand what Paul proceeded to do as he went on in three missionary journeys through all kinds of hardship? And if you have time this week, read Acts chapter 13 to 19 and just see the sort of things that Paul dealt with. And you'll realize that what drove him was the love of God, the mercy he had received. So he has a gospel. He has a message to preach. But the emphasis here is on the power that message has been given by the grace, the love, the mercy of God. And it's that that makes the gospel message powerful. Not that we're profound preachers and very persuasive, though... Some try and do that kind of thing, but, but the fact is that when the gospel comes into a person's life, it transforms them, it gives them newness of life. Well, there's a second aspect here that Paul brings out. It's work and power. Paul had work to do. He knew what he was up to. He went through all kinds of hardships preaching the gospel in town after town, sometimes being received well, but oftentimes being received rather poorly. He dealt with all kinds of situations. He went to some towns where there weren't even enough Jews to start out there. Usually his practice was to start with the Jews, and when they rejected him, then he would open it up to the Gentiles. A good example is in Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, in the first missionary journey, as Paul and Barnabas went to Pisidia, uh, Iconium, um, they preached in the synagogue, on the Sabbath in the synagogue. The next Sabbath, almost the whole town gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it's necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, I made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews in incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. They shook their dust off their feet and they went on. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Paul's work was powerful and it was work. He knew he had to take that message and he had a plan. We'll get into that in a couple of moments. But as we notice here, he says, 
I don't brag about anything in my work of God except what Christ has accomplished through me. It's not what I've done. It's what Christ has done. He recognized that Christ and his spirit was at work with him as he ministered. And so the work went on with the power was the power of the Holy Spirit. And we know from the book of Romans that the Spirit has a lot to do with our coming to faith in Jesus Christ. He enables us to believe. He calls us to Christ. Uh, he applies the work of Christ in our hearts. He sanctifies us. The Holy Spirit is full of power. And Paul recognized that his ministry was work, but it was work that was empowered by the Spirit of God. Uh, he goes on here to say that um, by word and deed, Paul was mainly a preacher. And 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2 and 3 talk a lot about his preaching. It's like foolishness to the world. The Jews, the Gentiles, they consider my preaching foolishness. But those who are being saved, it is the power of God for salvation. As you look at what Paul says about his preaching, you realize that God has chosen through the medium of sharing the gospel, of preaching, of bringing people to him. But it's accompanied by deed. Jesus ministered with word and deed. And, and so, so ministries of service to people, helping people in times of need, what we would call diaconal activity, the work of many women in, in ministering to people who, who have situations um, are certainly a part of this sort of thing. Ministry is involved with opening up the gospel to people through what we say and what we do. People need to see the gospel at work in our lives. And, and Paul talks about signs and wonders here where the spirit of God is at work, where people's lives are being changed. It will be seen. It will be noticed. Sometimes it stirs up trouble, but the Spirit is at work. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 to 12, Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light to everyone the plan of mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifest wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Come now to the third aspect, ambition and vision. Paul says that from Jerusalem and all the way up to Illyricum, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on another one's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard understand. Paul has ambition. <laughs> There's no question about that. 
I mean, he's been here and there and everywhere. He basically says, from Jerusalem, I should do this correctly, from Jerusalem in the southeast east corner to Illyricum, which is up in um, Dalmatia, almost into Croatia, in the northwestern part of the Mediterranean world, Paul has planted churches all over the place. Now, some people might say, well, yeah, but he hasn't converted everybody. I mean, there are churches, but there are lots of unbelievers and stuff. Paul has got a strategy. His ambition is to plant the church and then let the church begin to reach out into its region and evangelize. So Paul plants churches and each church becomes a center, a place of outreach to the region around it. And so once a church is established, and it was a process, I mean, first you have to gather together some believers and, and get them where then you need to train elders. And oftentimes Paul would make a second visit after a year or so in order to ordain elders and to establish the work even more. And the letters that Paul wrote to these various churches are illustrative of the kind of ministry that he had in these congregations. And there are a lot of things that are not covered in the book of Acts. For example, we don't have any reference in Luke's writing in the book of Acts to Paul visiting the area up in the northwest near Illyricum. But in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, there's a big gap. Paul's wandering around up in that region somewhere and ministering, and that's probably where these things took place. The book of Acts is not comprehensive, but it does make it clear that Paul has a clear strategy, and his strategy is to reach out and touch communities through centers of outreach. On top of that, Paul is got people working with him. Lots and lots of partners. You start reading in Acts or any of the epistles, you're going to find that Paul hardly did anything by himself. I mean, his first missionary journey was Barnabas. And the second missionary journey, he and Barnabas had a bit of a falling out. God multiplied the missions. Paul went with Silas. And then as we go on through the epistles, we find again and again there are references to people that worked with Paul. There's Timothy and Titus. I mentioned Aquila and Priscilla a little bit ago. Um, they met with Paul in um, Corinth. They were from Rome. Um, they had left Rome because of persecution. The Jews were being persecuted and they had left and come to Corinth. They were so powerful in the word of God that they got a very scholarly man named Apollos from Alexandria and straightened him out on his theology. Um, a powerful man, and yet they helped him to see the truth. There were others. In fact, as interesting as it is, as you um, look here, you find that in chapter 16, the beginning of 16, Paul refers to Phoebe. Phoebe's a woman, and she lives in the port city of Corinth, and apparently she's taking this letter to Rome. And what's more, she's called a deaconess. <laughs> now, you know that um, in our 
Reformed circles, we have this discussion about deaconesses. And I don't know if it's necessarily a official office here. Obviously, it's one of the few places in scripture where a woman is referred to as a deaconess, but she is. She's a woman devout in her faith that Paul entrusts with this gospel, with this presentation of the gospel, with this letter to take it to Rome. Paul has got to go in the opposite direction, but he entrusts it. As you go into chapter 16, you find quite a bit of discussion about the church in Rome, and I'll get to that in just a second because I want to say something else first. <laughs> Paul then quotes from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15, because we've been talking about Paul's ambition, but now we've got to talk about the vision. And the vision is not Paul's, it's God's. God's vision is that the gospel will be taken to all the nations of the earth, to the ends of the earth. And this verse he quotes from Isaiah chapter 52 is preceded by a reference to the servant, the suffering servant in Isaiah, the servant that is clearly a picture of Christ. And he says, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him for what they were not told they will see and what they had not heard they will understand. Paul here is indicating that God's ministry is to the nations. But the word nations is a rather interesting word too because it's actually the word ethnic to different ethnicities and you go priest a little bit earlier in the book of Romans chapter 15 and as Paul is talking about Christ as the hope of Jews and Gentiles he says in verses 9 and following he quotes four times from the Old Testament to signify that this is God's plan in order that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. I think it's important to realize that, that he's not thinking in terms of national boundaries. He's thinking in terms of people groups. You know, we have a lot of people groups. Even in our own community, there are Hispanics. Um, I don't know whether there are what other ethnicities you might have around here, but, but I mean, let's face it, our culture is full of different ethnic groups. And Paul's desire is to see that within these ethnic groups, the gospel is planted, that they might, and they can do this best, minister to their own. And so Paul is talking here, not just simply about sending someone off to Afghanistan, but recognizing that even in our communities are those people groups that need to hear the gospel. 
And in, as one who has studied missions a few years, missions has changed. It used to be we thought in terms of sending out missionaries. Now we don't have to send them out. We can go to the university. It's full of people from all over the world. And we can minister to them. And RUF and others find oftentimes there's ample opportunities to present to people of many different cultures and backgrounds the gospel. God's vision is not simply that we plant churches here, but that we reach to the nations. And so, as we come to the end of this message, there are no excuses. Paul begins by saying, I am satisfied about you, my brothers. You yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Remember, Paul has not been to Rome. Paul knows some people in Rome. Apparently, he knows a lot of people in Rome because you read chapter 16, it goes on and on and on about greet this person and greet that person and, and so on and so forth. And Paul not only worked with a lot of people, but he knew a lot about people as well. And he knew a lot about what was happening in Rome. He knew about the churches there. They were not a big congregation. They were a bunch of house churches with different people that were we're shepherding those flocks. And as you go through that list of names in chapter 16, you find all sorts. You find people of different ethnicities. There are people with Greek names, with Jewish names, with Latin names. There are people that are obviously wealthy. There are some people that are obviously aren't. A lot of people he greets are, are women who were involved at the work of the church in Rome. Social status and wealth are not limiting factors in the work that's going on in Rome. Paul realizes that within the city of Rome, there are churches reaching out and ministering in all sorts of ways to all sorts of people. And he says... I am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to instruct one another. And just to be sure, I added a footnote in this letter from chapter 1 to chapter 8, excuse me, chapter uh, 14. You are able to minister. And we go back then to chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 8, I flipped my Bible. I didn't mark that page. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Your faith is proclaimed in all the world. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that I might now at last come succeed in coming to you, I long to see you that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul goes on in chapter 15. 
to say this, you're full of goodness, you're full of knowledge, you're able to instruct one another. Paul is encouraging them in the ministry of the gospel as partners with him to the ministry to the Gentiles, ministry to the nations. And so my encouragement to you at this point in time, and why did I pick this passage, <laughs> is that you are engaged now in a new turning point in the history of your church. You're going to be taking on a shepherd, and I'm sure you're all like very excited to have him come, and I'm sure that there will be a honeymoon. There always is when a new pastor comes, and then there will be times of adjustment but he won't be the one to do the ministry. For the last um, year and a half months, who has been doing the ministry? Who has been writing the bulletin? Who has been arranging for pastors? Who has filled the pulpit from time to time? Who has dealt with the needs of the congregation? And this does not mean that now all of that goes to him. You're not out of a job. <laughs> and much more than that, as we look at this, what Paul is teaching us here, the women aren't out of a job either. Now we know the women get short shift in terms of the work of the church, that oftentimes they're, you know, not lifted up too often much, but yet they do a lot of the work. The plain and simple fact is that having a shepherd come should encourage all of you to all the more get involved in the work of ministry. The work of reaching out with the gospel. You're going to be strengthened by this, but you don't want to think that now we can sit back, we found the pastor, the pulpit committee can finally take a night off from those weekly meetings. But to recognize that it's a new era in the life of grace Presbyterian Church in Mount Vernon. And along with your shepherd, with the elders and the deacons and the others of the church, as you together unite in the ministry that God has given you through the Spirit, you can reach out into this community. You can touch it. You can see the church grow. But it's a work that is not given simply to the preachers. This is the work of the whole body of Christ.